We'll start with prayer, and then we'll read Jonah 1 again. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that we can come together and study your word. And we ask that in this time that you would give us understanding and wisdom. Give us a desire to obey and treasure you. May we not be blind to reality because of our sin, like Jonah, but maybe be awakened to you and to your good purposes that you have for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Jonah 1, we will read this together again in its entirety. A couple of things to review just where we are in Jonah, and then we'll carry on in verse 10. But the entirety of chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below a deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Just a quick review of what we've seen so far in the book of Jonah. Once again, so far this is the record of one particular mission that God has given the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai. In 2 Kings, we have seen Jonah appear before, where he is used by God to serve the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And so we know that because he is witnessing during the reign of King Jeroboam II, that 
this particular prophecy itself must have also taken place around the same time, which is 793 to 795 BC. So that's the event for the Jonah and the dating for when this particular prophecy would have taken place. Once again, this book is in the Minor Prophets, meaning that alongside with the other Minor Prophets, this book points to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I said last week, and I'll say it again tonight, there is nothing in the book of Jonah that specifically mentions Christ. There is no messianic prophecy that just sticks out, like in the case of Isaiah or, or Jeremiah or Micah. For instance, but we know that the events of Jonah point to Christ because Christ himself in the gospel says that he identifies with the ministry of Jonah. In fact, his ministry is a greater realization of Jonah's ministry. And so we're going to have to remind ourselves as we read this book that it is pointing towards the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we'll have to Isn't examine a, what that looks like. Sort of small connection where Jonah is in the belly of the whale three days, and the Lord's in the in the ground for three days. That is the that's one of the connections, yes. <laughs> but there's more to it. Yeah. So as we look at this book, there is a genre that we have to understand. It is a narrative, meaning as we read these four chapters, it's going to be told in story form. It's historical. It actually happened. There are some that say that Jonah is a fable or a parable, just like Jesus taught the Good Samaritan or other parables in the Gospels. But this actually did take place, and it is prophetic. And we're going to interpret this book by looking at the story, looking at the characters and the events, and seeing what is revealed through them. So through the speech, through the actions of the characters of the story, we learn theological truths. And so, so far in chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, we've looked at the divine call of Jonah and how it comes from God, but how it is unique when it comes to the other Old Testament prophets. Where is he called to go and preach? Nineveh. Where is Nineveh? Not Israel. It's Assyria. So he's called to go and preach a message against the sin of Assyria or a message calling repentance to a people that are not part of Israel. And so it's unique. In Jonah's disobedience, he, he does not go to Nineveh, but rather he goes east to, or west, sorry, I did it again, to Tarshish, which Spain at that point was the farthest corner of the earth for Israel. So he's not just taking off, but he's going as far away as he can to avoid this call. And then, of course, we see God's response to Jonah's disobedience as he pursues Jonah through the storm. And so we looked at the events that we have seen so far, and already we have seen key things revealed about God. That he is the creator. He is ever-present. He is the creator who loves all of creation. Not just Israel, but all of creation, including those that people may classify as the wicked of the wicked. Assyria, remember the description of what they did to those who ultimately were not on their side. But God is the God who loves all of his creation. He is the creator who uses unbelievers to accomplish his purposes. 
and he's the God who disciplines his erring people all for the sake of bringing about holiness and righteous living. So, so far in these first nine verses of Jonah, we have seen these great truths revealed to us about God. But we've also seen truths revealed to us from the sailors or the mariners about the reality of humanity. There is a real enemy that humanity faces called mortality, that they are unable to help themselves in overcoming it. We also see the reality of how the false gods in whom they trust cannot rescue them from that. And of course, through Jonah, we are reminded of the reality of sin, the hard-heartedness towards God, and the side effects and consequences that it brings into our lives as well as the world around us, when sin and rebellion towards God is demonstrated. And so with that reminder of these key things we've seen so far, we resume with verse 10. Once again, we are looking at a particular part in chapter 1 where Jonah has now woken up and he is in the hot seat. He's being interrogated by those who are on board. And the first question they asked in verse 9 was an identity question. Who are you? We saw how Jonah responded, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. And we talked about the significance of that. His identity and his true treasure is his nation first. And so therefore, he's not going to go and preach a message of love and repentance to a nation that is not part of his. He doesn't want them to experience the grace of God. That is for Israel. And so we see that is part of the reason why he flees and go to Tarshish. But now, in verse 10, they ask a second question to Jonah. And if the first question dealt with his identity, this second question has to do with his state of mind, what he actually is thinking. They ask him, what have you done, or why have you done this? Meaning, Jonah, if your God is the God of heaven and earth, the maker of it all, then what in the world are you doing running from him? Why have you done this? Essentially, what they're saying to Jonah through this question and an indirect statement to him is, you are out of your mind. You are out of your mind. This is who your God is. If this is who you confess him to be, then what have you done by coming on this ship and trying to run from him? What part of your plan actually thought this would be a good idea? And this question that the mariners ask Jonah, isn't that the question that applies to all forms of sin? To our rebellion? Towards God, what in the world are you thinking, rebelling against the God of heaven and earth? If he is truly the maker of it all, if we know who he is and his purposes and his plans and his holiness, then any action of rebellion against him is completely irrational. A 
Every time that I rebel against God or think that I can run my life the way that I want to run it, I am acting irrationally. That's what sin is. We live in a world that loves to value reason. They want to base reality based on what makes sense. Here we are reminded what does not make sense is a humanity that rebels against its creator. So the question, what have you done? Why have you done this? Talking about Jonah's state of mind, and it attacks all forms of sin in the process. And then the interrogation continues. Jonah still in the hot seat. Now comes the third question. The third question has to do with how are we going to fix this? If your God is the God of heaven and earth and he is ultimately the one who has caused this storm and this ship is about to break up, Jonah, time's not on our side, how can we then please him so that the storm can stop? And so the solution that's given both from Jonah and the mariners in verses 12 to 15, we realize that there is not a mutual agreement between them on how this should be resolved. First of all, Jonah, who is now aware that the storm has come upon them, he's woken up, he sees the storm, he knows why it's there. Now he begins to confess what should be done to, this, to him in front of the sailors. It's because of my disobedience, it's because of me, the storm has come upon you, and therefore the solution is for you to pick me up and throw me into the sea. And then the sea will become calm for you. Theological truths to reflect upon Jonah's conclusion. First thing to note. Jonah demonstrates the fact that he knows ultimately what the penalty of sin is and what must take place for God's wrath to be satisfied. He knows what the penalty for sin is and what has to take place for God's wrath to be satisfied. The wages of sin is death. This is what all those who violate the living God and irrationally disobey him Will experience. This is what was promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 that if you do this, if you disobey me, you will surely die. Now, we talked about this past Sunday the reality of what that death looks like a physical death. The body ceased to operate the way they were created to. There is a reality where our bodies just stop. Physical death. But there's also the second death in which we experience the eternal wrath of God and separation from him. This is the consequence for sin, for violating God's law. And Jonah here is saying, if I face this, if you throw me into the sea and I die and I experience the penalty for sin, then the God of heaven and earth, his wrath for this will be satisfied and the storm will cease for you and the sea will become calm. 
because the punishment for sin will have taken place. And of course, if we know anything about the symbolic nature of sea in the scriptures, for a sinner to be thrown into the sea, the very place where evil dwells, we've seen that in Revelation, it is fitting for the sinner to be thrown in. In the Gospels, we see as Jesus cast the demons into pigs, they then go into the sea. New heavens and new earth and a perfect world where God has restored everything. There is no longer any sea. And so we see that some symbolism being shown again here, even by Jonah being thrown in or being told that he should be thrown in. <clears throat> so he demonstrates acknowledgments of the penalty for sin, how God's wrath shall be satisfied. Here's something that we have to note about this confession or this admitting of what should be done. His confession and his admitting of what should be done is solely before the sailors. There is no confession or no acknowledgement of his sin or violation towards God given to the creator of heaven and earth. He's talking to the sailors. He's not admitting anything before God. few things to note about this. What's happening here? Well, the first thing that someone suggests is Jonah is still in a state where he would rather die and face the punishment for sin than go and be obedient to God and preach the message of repentance to the Assyrians. Which shows you how hard his heart is that he would rather die and experience the consequence and the punishment of sin than be obedient to God and go and preach the message of repentance to the nation of Assyria. Which would show that even though he's physically woken up from his sleep, Spiritually, he is still sleeping. His heart is still hardened towards the living God. Now, there is another interpretation that has been given, and it came up in my studies this past week, and it's, it's fair to acknowledge. Others say that there's no mention of God in his confession to the sailors because he is ashamed. He doesn't want to admit the fact that he has violated God's law, and so it's an act of just remorse and surrender. Just kill me. Kind of like what happened with who? Judas. Judas goes and kills himself after he betrays Christ. But what's the difference between Judas and Jonah? Well, Judas confesses his sin before others. He admits the fact that he's made a terrible mistake, he's betrayed innocent blood, and he shows his remorse. Jonah, there is no acknowledgement that what he has done is wrong. He's just saying, it's because of me, this is what you got to do. No act of remorse, no act of I've done something terrible and I deserve this, just this is why it's happening and this is what you need to do. There's a big difference. And so, myself personally, I am inclined to go with the first interpretation that this is a matter of Jonah's hard 
hard-heartedness that he is so hard-hearted against going to Assyria to preach a message of love and grace to to those Ninevites, those wicked, wicked people who are enemies of God, that he is so hardened against God that he would rather experience the penalty of sin. And therefore his irrational behavior of sin continues. I don't want to do this so bad that I'm willing to even experience the punishment for sin itself. Throw me into the sea. Irrational. something to learn through Jonah's response here that we must, must be aware of as the people of God. What has taken place so far is that Jonah has experienced the promptings and the grace of God already in his life through this discipline. Prior in this passage, Jonah is completely asleep, unaware to reality. He has no idea what's going on. He has no idea that people are about to perish on the boat. Now, by God's grace, he has woken up. He sees what's going on around him. He knows why it's happening. So he has a taste of reality. But despite that grace, despite that prompting and that revelation from God, he continues to harden his heart. Meaning, church, it is possible for us when we are disciplined by God to acknowledge what's going on, to acknowledge the problem, to acknowledge even things that God is allowing us to understand and why it's happening, but it is possible to not respond appropriately to that discipline and keep on going in hard-heartedness. That's why in Hebrews it says, do not harden your heart. If you hear his voice, listen. Unbelief that is not tackled will lead to hard-heartedness. And we must pray that we respond to the graces of God when they come into our lives. Jonah does not respond. He knows why the storm's happening. There's no more unawareness on his part. He tells the sailors, it's because of me. But he does not turn back. He keeps going. So it's a very big warning against the reality of not tackling and dealing with the issue of unbelief. So that's Jonah's solution. Throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. Because I will experience death, the penalty for sin, and God's wrath will be satisfied. And you, my dear sailors, the sea will become calm. Now the sailors have a much different approach to the solution. Verses 13 to 14, let's read this again. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Two things to note here. 
first of all, in their dealing with Jonah, and secondly, in their dealing with God himself. First of all, in their dealing with Jonah, what do they attempt to do? To go back to land. See, Jonah just said, you want the storm to stop. Pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will stop. And the boat will stop breaking apart. The sea will become calm, and you're on your way to Tarshish. You may have some, some holes in the boat to repair, but you're on your way. And instead, they earnestly and do their best to say, nope, we are going to spare you. And we're going to try to get to land. What are they displaying for Jonah in that moment? The answer is love. Love. Forgiveness. See, a lot of us, if we're honest, if we were the sailors, we'd be the first ones in line to throw them off the boat. You brought this upon us. We've thrown lots of our own valuable cargo into the sea. You know how much this day cost us from a business perspective? And you've been sleeping down there while we've been calling upon our gods and you've done nothing? Yeah, let me pick you up, you Israelite. I'll throw you into the sea. But they don't show desire for revenge. They show desire to spare. Desire to care for Jonah. See, Jonah hadn't cared about them one bit. He'd be sleeping when they've been crying out for their lives. And here, they do their best to spare and save him. Strangely enough, they're the ones who are showing love for their neighbor that the prophet of Israel failed to show. How ironic is that? We have much to learn from the attitude and response of the sailors to Jonah in this moment. Lesson on forgiveness, lesson on grace, lesson on love. So that's the response to Jonah. Now we see they're dealing with God himself. Eventually they realize their efforts to save Jonah are not going to succeed. The storm is becoming rougher and rougher. And so they cry out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. See, they do not want to sin against the God of heaven and earth. And clearly they know that taking a man's life is a violation in God's law. Now, how would they have known that? Was the Ten Commandments being passed around the Gentiles those days? Or was it part of the internal conscience that is within every single human being that still tells them there's some element of right or wrong? Part of being created in God's image? Well, we have no idea how they know, but we do know that they do know. They know it's a sin, and they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. It's the last resort in their eyes. And in response to that, they cry out for mercy. 
They say, please forgive us. Do not hold us accountable. And so it's night and day from Jonah because here the prophet chose to sin and there's no repentance offered. Here the sailors, they don't want to sin and they're crying out with repentance. Big difference. What is ultimately being displayed by these sailors as they care for Jonah and as they cry out to God? Well, what is God's law ultimately built upon? Two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Here, the sailors are showing a greater reverence for God and his law than the very prophet of Israel who was called to go forth and use it as the source of repentance. They're showing a love for God and a love for neighbor, a caring about God's law. Now, already something to think about theologically, especially if we understand the fact that the book of Jonah in some way is pointing to the future in the ministry of Christ. Here, God, by his grace, has caused a bunch of random Gentiles who all have their own gods who they've been calling out to and that hasn't gone very well for them. All of a sudden, they are beginning to display a reverence for God and a reverence for their neighbor, a love. What is he already beginning to reveal very subtly that I'm going to do something with Gentiles? There's going to be a day when Gentiles are going to obey my law. There's going to be a day where Gentiles are going to revere me through loving me and loving the neighbor. Already we're seeing hints of how God's going to do something even in the world. And that's his grace that accomplishes it. Now we're going to see it unfold more as we go through further into the book of Jonah, but we're already beginning to see it displayed a little bit as we see the actions of the sailors here. So then after they desire to care for Jonah, they can't, they cry out to the Lord for forgiveness, they then carry out the solution, knowing this is what they're supposed to do, is what the Lord has pleased, and Jonah is cast into the sea, And they threw him overboard, and the result was the raging sea grew calm. Now, what it doesn't say is that as a result, they said, whew, and they got everything they could together back in order on the boat and kept on going to Tarshish, thinking, okay, that's over with. You know, next time the person who's selling the tickets to the ship, we're going to make sure that we got a new person. We're going to be uh, 
doing a security check on these people coming on these ships from now on. Yeah. There's nothing of sense of relief and life goes on as normal. No, something happens as a result of the sea becoming calm. It then goes on to say that at this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So they throw Jonah into the sea and then everything that Jonah said happened. And as a result, they didn't just say, okay, on a Tarshish, but they stood there and they said, pretty much, who is this God? Who is this God? Who is the God that just calmed this raging sea? The very same question that a bunch of fishermen would ask later on as the very Son of God in flesh stood before them on the boat when the waves were going. Who is this God? Fear, reverence, awe, wonder. And not just, this God's really good. No, they, they greatly feared him. A deep reverence. And they began to offer sacrifices to him. Now, is this saving faith? Does this mean that at this moment they actually became proselytes or what would be called those who joined the Israel's faith at that time? There's no evidence of the fact that that actually happens in this passage. But what is revealed to us is the fact that God uses this experience to bring about great reverence for him among people from different nations. It's a moment of revelation. Theologically, what can we be reminded about from this? God has the ability to reveal his greatness and cause a reverence for himself to be produced in this world among creation despite the disobedience of his people. God does not need us to make himself famous. He doesn't need us to reveal his glory. He doesn't need us to be like, oh, you good disciples, you go out there and you do things right and then the world will know that I am the Lord. He can do it all himself. Because he is that great, glorious, powerful God. And that encourages me to know that even when I myself am not a perfect reflection of the living God to this community, it doesn't depend on whether or not I am that or not. God can still, by his grace, reveal himself. It's encouraging. It's encouraging when the world looks at the church and all they see is conflict and hypocrisy. How will the kingdom go forth? How will the people come to trust in the name of Christ and revere him? Well, God is God. 
and he can work even through the disobedient to bring about revelation of himself. That's how great he is. And verse 17, the greatness of God continues. Let's listen to a message on Jonah the other day by someone who's graciously become my friend lately, a, a way better preacher than I could ever be. But he says, this is pretty much where people would expect the story to end. Fitting end, disobedient prophet, over, next story. But as Jonah gets thrown into the sea, great experience for the sailors, they begin to have a deep fear and reverence to the living God. Jonah goes on to meet his death. The sailors think he's gone on to meet his death. But what Jonah does not know as he is thrown into that sea is he is actually falling deeper and deeper and deeper into the mercy and grace of God. Because even though he's going there, to face the penalty for sin that he has hardened his heart and, and is saying, I'm going to do this because I'm not doing this task. The living God who pursued him through the storm now pursues him in the depths of the sea. And one of the most interesting verses, I think, in all of Scripture is this. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So, there's a lot in this verse. First of all, what can be revealed through the fact that the Lord, though Jonah's ready to face the consequence, and he wants to, even his irrationality is being shown there because ultimately, if he's going to die, who's he still going to face? God. So his irrationality is being shown in the fact that I'm going to experience this and I'm forgetting the fact that I'm actually going to still meet the maker that I'm fleeing from. But what is revealed by the fact that as Jonah is cast into that sea, a huge fish is provided to swallow him. Well, first of all, we note that the grace and faithfulness of the living God is extended to his people. Church, when you give up, when you run away from God, when you harden your heart against him, when you throw in the towel and you say, I can't do this anymore, or you don't want to do it anymore, you read that verse in Jonah and remind yourself that even in my worst day, even when I am rebelling against God, he is never going to give up on me. Jonah, you're running from the Lord. First merciful act of discipline, here comes the storm. Jonah, you still don't respond to the grace of God through discipline. Okay, now you're in the sea. Here I come. 
merciful act discipline number two here's the whale or the big fish we know church that God is going to be faithful to us no matter how horrible we may feel no matter how angry at God we may be no matter if we're trying to run the other direction he's always going to be faithful to us that's very comforting to know however his faithfulness someone's car alarm going off Want to solve that now before going any further? Anyone's car? I don't know. God's going to be faithful to you. Secondly, his faithfulness is not going to be defined by comfort. Meaning, okay, Jonah is in the belly of a big fish. You don't like seafood? Not the place to be. (laughs) It is uncomfortable. It is a severe mercy, but it's faithfulness. There are going to be times in our life where God may have to bring in severe mercies. But... They are still acts of faithfulness to us. A lot of people in North America are wanting a comfortable Christianity. Not only when it comes to following Christ, but here's a reality. God loves you so much. He's going to be faithful to you so much. He's going to do whatever he has to do, even how uncomfortable it may be, to demonstrate that to you. And ultimately, we'll see how this plays out in Jonah's own life, the purpose of this discomfort. So God is faithful to his people, but it's not always displayed with comfort. Second thing, once again, God is exalted as the all-glorious creator. Please note the obedience of the fish versus the disobedience of the prophet. Even the fish obeys God. He's the one. He's the creator. He calls, the fish obeys. Isn't that amazing? The God's not just saying, hey, Eric, I love you. But he's saying everywhere tonight, You, star, come out. You, fish, do this. You, bird, sing your song in the morning. You, squirrel, you chase that nut. Whatever it may be. God is the creator. And creation obeys. So he is the all-powerful creator. You cannot... Get away from Jonah couldn't even escape him in the depths of the sea. So he's omnipresent. He's all present. But here we also see through this that he is what theologians call omniscient. 
which is a really big word for he is all-knowing. Notice something about the fish. Big word. Prepared. In the Greek, which the ESV would translate differently, NIV says provided, but it notices the fact that this fish that has been provided has also been prepared. Meaning, God was not surprised by any of Jonah's disobedience. He was not surprised by the fact when he said to Jonah, Arise and go to Nineveh, that Jonah got up and, Nope, I'm going to Tarshish. He knew exactly how it was going to go down, and in his all-knowing way, he already began to prepare his faithfulness to him. This whale is going to obey me, and this particular fish I'm going to set apart to carry out this act of discipline. It's prepared. Do you know, church, that today the Lord your God knows everything about you. He knows what your tomorrow holds. He knows the failures of tomorrow. He knows the mistakes you're going to make. He knows when you are going to get up and run the other way. But guess what he already has prepared? His faithfulness to you in the midst of your rebellion. He's already got the solution. He's already got his graces, new mercies that you meet. When you wake up in the morning, they've been prepared. God knows exactly what he's going to do in all of your seasons of life, including the moments of rebellion. And he knows the graces that he's going to extend. His foreknowledge, his ultimate knowledge. And ultimately, we see this, this knowledge demonstrated in the truth of the gospel. He creates Adam and Eve, and then Adam and Eve disobey God. God's up there and going, what? I didn't see this coming. This was clearly not written well. Jesus, did you see this coming, Spirit? I, did we do this? No idea. No. New. New. And in his great mercy, the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world because he had his faithfulness and his grace prepared all knowledge all knowing prepared mercies the beauty and the wonder of our god i have comfort wait knowing that when i wake up tomorrow morning if i somehow shipwreck my life god's got his mercies prepared his faithfulness is going to be there for me it may not be comfortable but he's already got everything figured out of what he's going to do to bring about glory to his name and to care for my good. So Jonah's learning some pretty important things here. We're learning some pretty important things here. 
Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. When he should have died, when he should have drowned, he is preserved. The grace of God, the faithfulness of God, the mercy of God prepared in advance. And from this, this great act of kindness, now in chapter 2, Jonah begins to address and talk to the very one that he was seeking to run from. So let's read chapter 2 together. From inside the fish, uncomfortable grace, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, and the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And those who cling to worthless idols, turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. (coughs) Chapter 2. This When it comes to the genre of this text, this is where we now enter the reality of poetry. This is a song. This is a recollection of the event that Jonah has when he's inside the fish. If you ever want to call something a prayer of desperation, this is the time. First thing I want to talk about the structure of this song. What's being said here in the structure, it's it's not unique to Jonah. What we see here is if we compare it to the book of Psalms, for instance, for instance, this is what would be classified as a Thanksgiving psalm. Which first of all begins with the petition for deliverance. So all Thanksgiving psalms begin with the petition for deliverance. Secondly, after that petition, there then is a review of the crisis that they are going through. So after they pray for deliverance, they take time and review the very crisis for which they need deliverance from. And then they take time to review the deliverance that came and offer praise for the deliverance as a response. So the psalm is a recollection of what takes place in the belly of the fish, recalling Jonah's petition for deliverance, his review of his situation, his review of God's deliverance, and offers praise for that. 
Here in this passage, we see the prophet who is disobedient, whose hard heart has been displayed towards God. We see that hard-heartedness soften. We see the grace of God that has been displayed in this discipline as uncomfortable as it has been. And we see the, the product that was the goal of the discipline in the first place, righteousness, godliness, repentance, begin to take place. But we look at this song, we look at this prayer of Jonah. What theological truths can we take from this that we see are part of Jonah's song? First thing I want to talk about tonight. There is no place, as uncomfortable as it may be, as dark as it may be, that as long as you are living, the living God cannot hear your prayer. There is no place where you cannot pray and the God of heaven and earth cannot hear you. If Jonah had cried out to the sailors, would they have heard him? Is that Jonah down there? What's he doing? Oh my goodness. He's not even dead. This is awful. Get the lifeboat. (laughs) No, they didn't hear him. Are the fishies swimming by going, what's that guy saying? I have no idea. There's no Nemo Adori going on there. <laughs> but there's one. There's one who can hear. There's one even in the pits of despair and, and loneliness and whatever situation you may find yourself in when no one else around can hear you. There's one who always hears. No matter what state you're in, no matter how much you've been running from him, God hears your prayer. You know, sometimes people can ask me this question, whether it's in my office or over coffee. You know, sometimes I pray and I pray and I pray and I wonder if my prayers are just hitting the ceiling. I wonder if God can actually see me here. See what's become of me, how I've messed up my life. I've gone so far, I can't recognize myself. Can God recognize me? Can he distinguish my voice? Know who I am? Not our time, it's his time. And because he is God, and he is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful, and he is the great creator who, who even the fish obey, Yes, he hears us. So therefore pray. Therefore pray. Even if you think he can't hear you. Even if you think you wonder what's going on and whether or not people are actually, you know, no one else is hearing. Can God hear me? Pray. God hears you. God hears you when you're praying and you can barely talk. God hears you when you're praying and the tears are running down your face. You can barely say what you want to say because you're in so much grief or you're angry or you're ashamed. God hears you and he listens. So 
that's the first thing to be encouraged with. The second thing that we see in Jonah's case is acknowledgement of God's discipline. Verse 3. You hurled me into the depths, the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. See, on the boat, Jonah says, you guys, sailors, pick me up, throw me in. That's the end of it. Now here, as he's sitting, or laying probably, in the belly of the big fish, the grace of God is beginning to work. He's starting to be awakened more and more to reality. And he says, you have been behind this and in this all along. I'm in this belly of a fish Because ultimately, your discipline brought me there. I thought I was calling the shots. I thought it was my choice and my solution, and I was the one who was telling them what to do. But now I see it's your hand that has been with me and your discipline and your grace the entire time. And let me tell you, it is good, 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 good news when we can recognize that grace and that discipline in our life. Where we can say, God... I could not make sense of this hardship. I thought it was this. I thought I was in control. I thought it was because of this. But now I recognize all the discomfort, all the pain, all the brokenness, even through the running. Your hand has been with me, and I am here because your grace has been following me. It's your discipline, and you've been behind this. thinking about even myself as I look back over the past 15 years of my life and think about all the seasons of hardship, all the seasons where I've even myself have rebelled or fought God on things. And I look back and I thought I understood why things were happening and I can look back and I can see just God's grace, God's hand of discipline, God's hand of mercy. Even when I, like Jonah, was saying, no, God said, okay, still faithful and to recognize that it was God it's God's discipline it's God's grace I am preserved in this belly of a fish not because free willy got hungry but your grace God it's your grace uncomfortable as it is as painful as it was God it was your grace Isn't that beautiful? We can look back at the trials in our life that are even self-inflicted and say, God, your grace met me in that moment. Your grace met me in that time. And ultimately, your kindness leads me to the third thing we see in Jonah's prayer is repentance. All this discipline, the storm, now the belly of the fish has been for a purpose. God never brings hardship and discipline and suffering into your life without the purpose of bringing about righteousness. There's a purpose for it. And so here we see that his kindness leads Jonah to repent. Now, in this song, we don't actually see the word repentance. And so you're wondering, where where is that coming from? I don't see this in the song. Well... It's in the language that is being used in verse 4. 
I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. In Jonah's time, where does the presence of God reside? In the temple. What has Jonah's disobedience been characterized as all through chapter 1? He has been seeking to flee from the presence of the Lord. And now he's saying, God, I want your presence. I want to look at it again. I want not to flee from you. I want to run to you. It's repentance. That's, biblically, that's repentance. Repentance, again, it's not just saying, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. But it's saying, Lord, I don't want the sin. I don't want to run from you. I don't want to run to you. And of course, his repentance, what comes before it? God's kindness. Do you know why every single one of us, I pray, has had a moment in our life where we have said, God, I repent. It wasn't because we all of a sudden woke up one day and said, today I'm getting right with the maker of heaven and earth. Something came first. Something came your way first. And it's the grace of God. It's his kindness. It's his love. His kindness leads you to repentance. Even when you're rebelling against him like Jonah. His kindness, his trial, his discipline, his love, it brings you back. So here, the big moment, the discipline that's been so uncomfortable, the realization, the fruit of what it was for taking place. Jonah's saying, God, I want, I want your presence again. And clearly, I've learned that I can't avoid you. So now we in this song... The faith of the prophet begins to arise. A confidence begins to arise. And all of a sudden we see Jonah beginning to express a lot different speech than previous. Because now he's not just saying, I want to repent, but God, I trust you. The story does not end in the belly of this fish. What does he display? He he displays an expectation and trust that God is going to deliver him. So not only do they say, God, I'm here because of you. God, I've messed up and I want to repent. It's your discipline that's come. I recognize it. I repent. But now he's saying, God, I know, I know that Jonah, the son of Amittai, when they read about me later at Elgin Street Baptist, thousands of years later, it's not going to be because I died in the belly of this fish. You are going to deliver me because you are faithful to your people and your faithfulness has been shown to me even in the depths of the sea. I can see how faithful of a God you are. And how do we know this? Well, he goes on to say what he is going to do. Verse 9. But I with 
shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. He's not just talking about looking at the temple and and going to be with the presence of God. He's talking about, I'm going to go there. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to be part of the thanksgiving and offering that is part of the worship of God at that time. I'm going to do it. I am getting out of this fish. There's a confidence, an expectation, a trust in the faithfulness of God. What a change. So all of a sudden go from, I don't want God, I'm willing to face the consequence of sin, now I recognize your grace, God, and now I'm saying, God, even though I'm here and I deserve it, you are going to be faithful to me, and I'm getting out of this fish, and I'm going to that temple, and I'm going to offer my sacrifice of praise. And when I smell like seedweed, there's going to be a reason why. That's confidence. That's expectation. question is, church, do we trust in God like that? When the trials come, whatever they may be, do we say, God, I know you're good. doesn't matter what's coming. You're going to be faithful. I don't care what the doctor said about this illness. I don't care how many years of life I may have left. I don't care what they may say about this. All I know is, God, you are going to be faithful, and I'm going to know it. That's faith. It's trust. There is some serious transformation going on in the belly of that fish. But God had to bring him into the belly of the fish into the most uncomfortable situation in his life to do it. There's the holiness. There's the transformation. There's the faith. There's the righteous living. Here's the question. Will you let God, do you want to let God take you into the pits of whatever it may be, uncomfortable as it may be, to let you declare to God that kind of trust in him? challenged and so then he goes on after declaring the greatness of his God and he begins to trash mock expose the worthlessness of idols false gods those who cling to worthless idols once again we're back to the reality of what the sailors were doing on the ship they started calling out to each of their own gods. There's many gods on ship. None of them are real except the living God. And Jonah's saying, they're worthless. They're worthless. There's one true living God. One. One alone. There's only one that the fish obey. And those who trust in them, this is what they're doing. They're ultimately turning away from God's love for them. 
What do those who trust in false gods miss out on and not taste? Experiencing the love of the true God. It was not the gods of the sailors that rescued Jonah in the depths of the sea. It was the true living God. And even in the discipline, even in the hardship, he was knowing the love. If a sailor, if it had been a sailor that fell into the sea and was swallowed by that big fish, his God's not rescuing him. His God doesn't love him. There's no relationship there. There's no real experience there. Living God, loving relationship, loving care, he's the only one. And all who trust in false idols are missing out. I hope you are encouraged this evening to know that you have, if you have Christ, the greatest relationship that one can ever know. Because you have a relationship with the God of love, the living God who loves his people and is faithful to them. The worthlessness of idols and how people miss out on that by trusting in them. And ultimately, there's one thing that he says, and it doesn't say it here in the NIV or whatever translation you're using, but in the Greek, this is capitalized, meaning that what is being said here is not just being said, it's being shouted. It's a declaration. He goes on and he closes his song by saying, I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Not only do they miss out on the love of God, but ultimately they miss out on how that is ultimately expressed. God alone can save. God alone can save. God alone can rescue someone from mortality. Can give you life. Can give you freedom. And we continue to see, when we think about the worthlessness of idols and looking for salvation, we look around in our world today and people admit there's a problem. They admit that things aren't working the way they were supposed to. You just have to turn on the news or read the paper. Well, there's another shooting or there's another thing or there's another particular scandal that's going on. This world is not operating the way it was supposed to. And people are looking everywhere for some kind of relief and rescue from it. For some people, it's the bottle. For some people, it's money. For some people, it's the career. For some people, it's sex. For some people, it's family. There are so many idols that people can bow down to and try to find meaning and rescue from it, but there's only one God who can actually deal with the situation. And that's the living God. Salvation only comes from the Lord. And lastly, a couple things. 
his response to that salvation. If you've been saved by the living God, if you grasp what he has done, if you've experienced his faithfulness, his love, his discipline, his uncomfortable grace, when you recognize how it led you to repentance, to experience his salvation, the things that should flow out of us should be, in verse 8 and 9, grateful praise and thanksgiving. What should ultimately be in the life of someone who's been delivered by God? Thanksgiving. The church, the people of God, should be thankful people. That's why in the epistles it says, do everything without complaining. Because the reality is, if you grasp who your God is, what he's done for you, how he has promised to use every single thing for your good, then when the trials come, when the uncomfortable grace comes your way, even if it's his form of discipline, what in the world or what right or why would we complain? Lord, I, I know who you are. I know that you've set me free from sin. Thank you for that. Uh, I know that you'll be faithful to me and work all things for my good, but I just really want to complain about this situation right now. I'm really not liking how it's turning out, and uh, I just want to voice my complaint to you. But I believe that you're working all things for good, and I know who you are. I'm thankful for my salvation. Anybody see how ridiculous? It doesn't sound so ridiculous when I say it, to be honest. Oh, I know. It's part of our irrational behavior, is it not? It's like, God of heaven and earth, you are good. You are my provider. You are my shepherd. I shall not want, but man, I am complaining because my bank account is really low right now. But you're my provider, and I shall not want. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Man, life is tough. Isn't life tough? Complaining. And I'm like, I'm a complainer. I complain. I complain when I get stuck at that light that never seems to change down there. I don't know why I keep going to it, but I complain. I complain when I realize that the food that I had wasn't actually cooked and I'm not feeling so good. My own fault, but I complain. Complain, 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 and part of being saved by God, one of the things that make you shine in this world is thank you. You know what makes someone shine in the world? And I think my mom. Thank you, God, for my MS. What? (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's a sign that God's not for you, woman. What are you thinking? No, no, no. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for that storm that you allowed in my life last year, because through it, I'm different. Thank you, God, for the fact that right now I cannot see, I cannot see where my life is going, because it gives me the opportunity to get on my knees and trust you. Hmm. Interesting. Thankfulness. And sacrifice. Offer sacrifice to you. Now, what's the ultimate sacrifice that God is looking for in response to salvation? 
is it Sunday morning, 10.45 to noon, or if it was last week, 12.15? That's our life. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. For this is spiritual act of worship. It's pleasing. It's what rational and makes sense. You know what doesn't make sense? Is going to the creator of heaven and earth and saying, God, you're my savior. You gave everything for me, so here's 50% of me. God, I worship you. You're my provider. I love you. I'll give everything for you. Don't touch my investments. God, I love you. I want to serve you. I want to give my time, but don't send me there. Interesting. Jonah had this moment. I'm a prophet. Send me to the northern kingdom. Yes. Blessing upon Israel. Amen, brother. Nineveh. You want me to go to Nineveh? No, no, not happening. Not happening. These are things that we do not get naturally in our life. They are a fruit that the Spirit of God produces in us. So the purpose of this is not to go home and say, well, I feel like absolute junk because I'm not really where I'm offering all of my life. I do hold some things to myself. Um, I'm not really thankful. I know that because I remember supper and how I wasn't thankful for certain things, whatever it may be. But it is a time for us to pray and say, God, will you take me there? Will you help me get there? When I go home tomorrow because of this particular time that you've spoken to me through your word, because God's speaking to us tonight through this text, make me more thankful. Make me more of a sacrificer. But in order to do that, I've got to grasp something. I've got to grasp the salvation that comes from the Lord. You know, I was sitting on Sunday and I... I honestly, what we need as the people of God, if we're going to be a light and a shining army in this community, is God, would you cause revival to break out in this church that we may grasp who you are, what you've done, and our salvation? Because that, when you grasp it, when you discover who God is, you can't just walk out of church and go, good service. Let's get lunch. But you're walking that service going, did you see what happened? Did you see what the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, has done in our midst this morning? Did you hear how he spoke to us through that Bible that's from thousands of years ago and he was speaking directly to me? We need God to awaken us. Like Jonah, we need to be awakened so that we can trust in him we can worship him and we can celebrate him as our faithful God who extends salvation now Jonah, we're going to get on later on in chapter 3 just because Jonah is now spit out of the fish and God is uh, we're not talking perfect Jonah here okay 
but we do see the result of the transforming grace of God in his life, even in the uncomfortable discipline. And if that's what it takes, if we got to go into the, metaphorically into the belly of a fish to get God to make us like him, then whatever it takes, Lord. Jonah, uncomfortable message, but a message of God's faithfulness, grace, love, and transformation. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for the story of Jonah. We're thankful, Lord, that you have put it in your word. The story speaks to us. God, we know how we often are like Jonah. We can run from you. We can harden our hearts against you can do everything we can do to get away from you at times. But we celebrate that you are the God who is faithful. You're the God who is gracious. You're the God who is all-powerful. You are the God who can change a hardened heart and cause it to overflow with surrender and praise to you, the living God. God, if that is us tonight, if our hearts are hardened, if we're headed the wrong direction, Would you do whatever it takes to make us faithful disciples who grasp who you are, who give our lives to you and there's no task that's too small or too great, or that are thankful for everything that you've done. Our changes like you changed Jonah, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.